Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast on The Invention of Lying, the new movie written, produced, directed by, or at least co-written, co-directed, produced, and starring um, the British comic Ricky Gervais. I'm here with Dan Coyce from DC. Hi, Dan. Hey, Dana. Who is a critic for the Washington Post and also a contributor to the New York Magazine Vulture blog. And so, um, Dan, before we get started, I should mention that, as always, we recommend that you watch the movie before listening to this podcast if you don't want it to be spoiled. Because if it's not obvious from the title, we're going to be doing some serious uh, plot revelation. Okay, shall we begin? Let's do it. I think you share my uh, my fandom for Ricky Gervais. I mean, many, many millions share that. And also my disappointment at his so far uh, forays into Hollywood movies. And so um, I'm curious to hear what you thought about this one. I found this one fairly disappointing, even as I appreciated that it was made, if that makes sense. Um, I don't view it, I think, as, as much of a betrayal of the Ricky Gervais persona as you might have. But I do feel like as a movie... It was about a quarter of the movie that it could have been had Ricky Gervais's um, comic sensibility been unleashed upon it in full. Uh, yeah, I found it absolutely confounding and, and saddening. And yet it's not a movie that, you know, I hate. I guess I guess I'm glad it exists and that it's got a few pretty good jokes in it. But let's let's go into a quick story summary and uh, feel free to, you know, stop and and make your observations during the, the, the plot summary. But you're going to do my scut work as always. The plot summary is Ricky Gervais is... A man living in an alternate universe. In which lying does not exist. Um, he's, he's a man named Mark living in some kind of New england small town in a world in which, the, in, in which lying has never even been conceived of by any of the human beings who live there. And not only are they unable to tell a lie, they, they sort of seem congenitally unable to not tell uncomfortable truths which is to say they can't even do the kind of lying that you and I do every day in which we just don't say something unpleasant about someone, whether it is true or not. And so the world is full of, uh, of people who say to each other, you look horrible today, or you are fat, or I definitely won't sleep with you, or I want to die, or whatever. They are basically people without edit buttons. Um, and into which this makes world. it seem a little bit also like an alternate universe of slightly meaner people, right? And that's something that's never quite cleared up. Is you know, is it the case that that Ricky Gervais believes that human nature is basically sort of mean? I mean, is this a myth- misanthropic movie or not? But we'll, we'll get to that later. So, so Gervais, well, I, I think to up. some extent, yeah, I mean, I think to some extent it's a misanthropic movie in that sense. But I also think it suggests something sort of refreshing about lying, which is that lying, in the view of this movie, is clearly not all bad in the i mean ricky gervais his character um in a moment of inspiration and dire financial straits um tells the world's first lie um to a bank teller who asks him how much money is in his account and when once he realizes the power of lies in a world where everyone will believe every single thing that comes out of your mouth he's off and running but one of the charms of this movie i think one of the things i really did like about it is that it does not have a simplistic view of lying it recognizes that lies serve a very important social purpose and in one case lies the ability to lie keeps us from saying hateful things to each other all the time and in another case the ability to lie actively allows us to say 
kind untruths to those people who really need them. And so after Ricky Gervais's character, after Mark goes to a casino and cleans it out and writes the world's greatest movie script that he just makes up because no one's ever made up anything in the history of the world. Right, there's no fiction, then, right? Movies aren't right. fiction, which is which is a nice right. conceit in this movie's world. So to write a screenplay is to just write down a sort of dry history of things that actually happened and film someone talking about it. Right. Um, but so after he does all that, after he betters himself, he very quickly turns to using lies to make unhappy people feel better. He tells his suicidal neighbor that, in fact, he does have a lot to live for and one day he'll meet someone, which is probably patently untrue as the suicidal neighbor is played by Jonah Hill. But he he gives him that kindness. He tells strangers on the street that life will get better. He tells his hapless friend Greg that... Um, that good things might happen to him. I mean, and, and and one of the nice things about this movie, I thought, and one of the things that surprised me about it was that I do think that it has both a misanthropic view of life and that it views honesty as, as, as in which, in that it views the natural state of honesty of honest human beings as being somewhat cruel, but it also views humans as they are now as generally kind and that the thing that we're often best at lying is something that can give comfort to people as well as hurt them. Right. I, I agree that the, the view of lying is sort of interestingly complex. I, I wish that he had spun it out even more. And we'll, I think we should get to the key sort of lie that he tells that changes the world in order to explore the, you know, philosophical complexity of lying in the movie. Do you want, do you want to tell it? Sure. Well, his, um, well, uh, Mark's mother is dying in a hospital and, near the moment of her death as she is expressing her fear about what would come next and the fact that after death comes nothingness he makes up a lie to to comfort her at least he makes up a story to comfort her and that story is basically heaven he invents heaven for her benefit he invents he tells her that after she dies there'll be a place that she goes where she'll be happy forever and she'll live in a mansion with everyone she's ever loved um, and that gives her comfort as she dies but the doctors and nurses who hear him say this are, are flabbergasted because in this world um, the notion of heaven uh, a story that probably could be, maybe is fictional, has never been stated out loud. And so Mark changes the world. He basically invents religion. Um, and from that step, the movie spins out into sort of a fanciful exploration of what would happen if one person invented religion right now. Um, but embed- but this whole story of Mark inventing religion from scratch is embedded within, it must be said, an extremely ill-suited romantic comedy plot in which Mark woos the girl of his dreams, Anna, who's played by Jennifer Garner. And yeah, I mean, there you've touched on this to me is the big honkin' problem with the movie, which is very hard to step around. There's some really clever stuff at the moment that he invents religion. I love the sort of the morning after um, that he, you know, his mother has died and he's told her this story and has apparently very quickly spread around the entire world. I guess the medical staff immediately ran to tell the press about the invention of heaven because by the next day, you know, people are flocking to his lawn to hear the tenets of this new religion. And he comes out with these two pizza boxes that are sort of like Moses's tablets on which he has inscribed you know, the laws for his new world. And all that stuff is very funny. That humor kind of reminded me of George Carlin, you know, and its surreality, sort of like um, this, right. this very literal reimagining of the absurdity of our, you know, of all of our um, religions and all of our ideological kind of structures. But 
as you say, this is all embedded in, I would say, 85% of the movie is about this um, this romance, very conventional romance with uh, the Jennifer Garner character, who is just an awful, awful person. I just, I couldn't get my mind around. First of all, I don't like Jennifer Garner as a performer, but that, that actually paled in comparison to just what a horrible character Anna was for, for, this, for this guy to fall in love with and deserve. I kept waiting for the moment that he was going to say, you know what, I just, I see through you now and, and I see that you're not worth it, but it never happens. Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, I didn't view her as a horrible character, or, or rather, I didn't view her as any more horrible than any of the other truth tellers in this movie. Which is to say, she, like everyone else in this movie, says exactly what she's thinking all the time. And so she tells Ricky Gervais, you're fat and I don't think that I can marry you because our children will be fat. Or um, she tells Rob Lowe, you would make an excellent genetic mastery because you're handsome or whatever but everyone in this world is like this it's true that she is sort of more self-possessed than some of the like losers in this movie and so therefore it seems even a little more cruel coming from her and it's true that when a genetically perfect person tells you that you're fat it hurts more than when a fat person tells you that you're fat but all the same I do agree with you that that's a huge flaw in the movie, that there's no there there in her character. I mean, there's nothing to her character. Mark introduces her at the beginning as the girl he's loved forever. And he tells her late in the movie that he's never met anyone as kind as her, but we never see any evidence of that. And I mean, for that matter, we never even learn what it is she does for a living or what she likes or hates or cares about or, or wants other than that she has a fear of being alone. Um, and it's like, it's sort of like the reductio ad absurdum of every female character in every romantic comedy, which is that usually they're ciphers, but in this case, she's, I mean, she's like, she's like a robot. It would be interesting to trace the, the cinematic history by which romantic female leads in romantic comedies have to be vapid morons. I think that that's actually fairly recent. I mean, Rosalind Russell and, and Catherine Hepburn, these people weren't vapid morons. I think it happened sometime in the 80s, along with the, the badification of so many other things in movies, along with the rise of the blockbuster and so many other things. But It isn't true in every romantic comedy, but certainly in rom- in a lot of them, you're absolutely right. And this is sort of the the highest possible level of that of that trend in that she's she could be anyone she could be a she is just a pretty face and given that one of the lessons of the movie that her character is meant to learn is that we're meant to look beyond the truth that stares you into the in the face into what the truths that lie deeper in untruth it seems odd that ricky gervais then is never given a reason to love her other than that she looks like jennifer garner I couldn't forgive the movie for that. It was a moment that the, you know, the sort of clever misanthropy of, you know, this, these scenes of him finding the rules of religion and, you know, people's most base instincts sort of coming out and finding out how many sins can I get away with committing, you know, before I have to go to hell or whatever, that that satire of human nature sort of bled over into just a more misogynistic and, and just sour vision of human nature, that this woman was just a vapid ignoramus. I just, I just could not get my mind around the final resolution of the romantic comedy. Also, well, as long as we're spoiling, we should say that the romantic plot resolved on a, a moment when he comes and interrupts her wedding. It's the classic romantic comedy interrupting the wedding scene, right? Which I feel like there's only a few of those are allowed in human history. It's just been too many now. The Graduate, fine. You know, maybe there's two or three others that I can let stand. But the interrupting the wedding thing is just awful. It really has to have something great in order to justify itself, right? And this just, yeah. just really doesn't. She's about to marry this Rob Lowe character who's sort of the male equivalent of her own character, the, the male vapid ignoramus, who in fact, in a more intelligent movie, she would 
belong with and end up with. And he would, you know, sort of find the the smart, nice girl. Um, and Ricky Gervais stands up and sort of tries to interrupt the wedding. And there's not any sense at all that her character, who is so completely focused on appearance that there's just scene after scene after scene in which she tells Ricky Gervais, oh, I could never be with you because you're fat and ugly, essentially. And that continues to be the uh, the debate between them in the wedding interruption scene. So I don't know. I was just I was really saddened by the moral poverty of, of that resolution. It's not even moral poverty that saddened me so much as the storytelling poverty and that there's so much in this movie that is inventive and fun. And, and so for a movie like this to end, as you say, in a wedding interruption, like that's that's embarrassing. Like, really? Well, because the, the movie's taken a lot of risks before that. I mean, we didn't really talk about the scene where his mother's dying, but I'm, I'm actually quite amazed that this made it through any kind of pitch meeting or story meeting or, you know, um, uh, focus group because it's a quite incredible scene, but it's a complete shift in tone from the first 20 minutes of the movie and is essentially played completely straight there's just this dying old woman saying i'm facing eternal nothingness and this is horrible and ricky gervais bursts into tears real tears he actually does some really good straight dramatic acting in that scene i think and you know proceeds to make up this lie about heaven and it's a complete shift in tone but it actually kind of works and is, is quite moving and um and so the fact that the movie's able to pull off those kind of philosophical shifts on a dime is pretty impressive and makes it all the sadder that you know it sells out to this crappy romantic subplot or, or right main so plot. It, it definitely makes me wonder about the development process of this movie. And we know that Ricky Gervais is credited as a co-screenwriter and a co-director with a guy named Matthew Robinson about whom I know nothing. Um, this is his first script. He has no other IMDb credits. Um, and I don't know if this romantic plot has uh, was always in the script, whether it was something that Ricky Gervais added because he felt like the movie needed it, whether it was something that the studio said the movie has to have this, whether, I, I don't know how the the boring and sort of movie-reversing romantic comedy ended up being part of this movie, but it certainly makes me wish... I mean, the thing I thought of when I first saw this movie was I really wish that that was just gone, that this had really just been sort of like the life of Brian too, that it had gone madcap and crazy and included the whole world in a cast of millions rather than spending so much of its time on the interactions between Ricky Gervais and Jennifer Garner. And maybe that's not Ricky Gervais' style. I mean, he certainly has never shown himself before to be a guy who's interested in writing comedies about the whole world. He's interested in writing comedies about people talking to each other, and he's very good at it. But at the same time, the 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 possibilities here were so limitless that what he limited himself to or what the studio limited him to was super disappointing. I thought there were a lot of Gervaisian, very Gervaisian possibilities in, you know, the non-romantic parts of the movie as set forth. I mean, he loves to philosophize, you know, he, I think he really loves to sort of have a bunch of people sitting around bullshitting about an idea that's happened in all of his podcasts and all of his shows. And there were so many great routes that that could have gone down. I mean, as you say, the life of Brian, the fact that he essentially became the prophet, you know, the sort of messiah of the world and in fact he's shown in the church where jennifer garner's getting married to rob lowe at the end there's this funny kind of mosaic behind them that shows ricky gervais with his two pizza boxes right like the tablets right right it's a quiet place to think about the man in the sky Right, because all right, because all of and and God is called the man in the sky throughout the movie. So all sort of um, religious terminology has been has been rendered very literal. And there's a great route that that could have gone down, right? But we don't really see anything about how the universe 
restructured itself after you know the coming of the pizza boxes. Instead, there's just a fallback on some some scenes that really I really didn't feel belonged in a Ricky Gervais movie at all. I was also very saddened by that scene you know where he's supposed to be depressed because she's marrying Rob Lowe and he gets out of bed and has no shirt on and is like the pasty fat guy and it's the joke straight out of the Judd Apatow movie, which is right. strained enough in that universe. But there was something so wrong about that. I mean, even though Ricky Gervais does sort of make some humor out of his kind of you know normal physical appearance that he's a pudgy you know british guy with funny teeth i just i felt that that was a moment of abjection that he did not need to put himself through and it felt kind of studio ordained hey so we we should take a break for a word from our sponsor audible.com which is the leading provider of audiobooks on the web we actually have a great um thematic recommendation today because ricky gervais is all over audible and i actually think ricky gervais's podcasts are some of the best things that he's done do you listen to any of his podcasts dan i certainly do I mean, I think I have every season of the Ricky Gervais show now, which I, which is now unfortunately over and was at one point, I think, the most popular podcast, the most downloaded podcast in the world. And that's a really, really wonderful three guys sitting around bullshitting um, kind of Gervais format, which is just him, Stephen Merchant, his longtime collaborator and co-creator of The Office, and their remarkably remedial friend, Carl Pilkington, who's sort of the source <laughs> of all the humor on the show. So that's great. But you can also, if you poke around Audible and enter Gervais's name, he's, he now has a bunch of other conversations with them, some of which touch quite closely on the theme of the invention of lying. He's got um, the, the history of philosophy, I think, or the Ricky Gervais Guide to Philosophy, it's called, the Ricky Gervais Guide to Natural History. They've just sort of got thematic conversations on um, abstract topics that you can you can download as well. Um, and as regular listeners know we have a great deal with audible.com slate podcast do where you can go there through our webpage and sign up for a membership and you get a free audiobook which you can keep even if you don't keep your membership and the place to do that is www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler but I can guarantee you, you will want to keep your membership uh, because for $15 a month, you get a free audiobook per month and lots of other offers and um, all kinds of all kinds of goodies. So give it a try. Now I'm going to deliver the uh, invention of lying style version of the audible.com ad, which is audible.com. We read books in your ears. <laughs> in exchange for money. In exchange for money. There's a nice bit in the movie in which we get to see uh, advertisements done in fully truth-telling style, like the great ad for Pepsi, Pepsi for when they don't have Coke. Which got, one of the, which got one of the bigger laughs in the movie. That was a good line. Oh, I have to quote my favorite line in the entire movie, although I think they milk this joke a little bit too much. It's when he's holding up the, uh, the, the tablets again, and there's just some really funny kind of hecklings and shout-outs from the crowd. And he tells them, oh, you, you, when you go to heaven, you'll all have a beautiful mansion, the most beautiful mansion you can imagine. And one guy says, damn it, I was thinking of a horrible mansion, <laughs> which for <Right>. some reason <laughs> for some reason, got a huge laugh at the screening I, I was in. It was just such an absurd Gervaisian piece, piece of logic that whatever kind of mansion you have to be thinking of at that moment was the one you'd be stuck with for eternity. I just love that. Right. Well, I mean, Gervais is very good with rampant literalism, and that's one of the strengths of this movie is that is that everyone in this movie is extremely bluntly literal. Um, I mean, they have no imaginations. They, they're constitutionally unable to have imaginations, and that that's one of the areas in which Ricky Gervais really shines. If you think about it, The Office and Extras, too, his, his two TV shows were all about people who sort of couldn't help telling the truth even when they were trying to successfully lie and, and you know, um, sort of grease their way through social situations, but they weren't able to do it. And so he's just, in a way, stripping stripping away the pretense from, from that, that humor in this movie. Right. If only, if only, if only he had just not bothered with Jennifer Garner and just made a movie about that. 
Is there anything else we want to talk about? Do you want to talk about the fact that every single role is stuffed with a with a famous comedian, as was just the case in The Informant, the last movie we talked That's about? True. I mean, we've got we've got Tina Fey in a small role, Louis C.K. in a fairly small role. Who else is is popping up in the background everywhere? Jeffrey, There's John Jeffrey Hodgman. Tambor. Oh, Ed um, Norton, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Right. Right. Oh God, I even forgot about Ed Norton. It seems mostly just to be like a testament to the fact that everyone wants to work with Ricky Gervais. So if it's like if he calls Ed Norton is like, do you want to play a cop? Ed Norton will say sure because there's a possibility that you might end up in the one of the greatest comedic scenes ever written. Although in this case you're not. Yeah, it seems like Ricky Gervais still has that kind of shine on him because you know people are just so impressed by his TV work and you know presumably his his stand up and his podcasting and so forth. But I feel like he he has yet to to break into the movies in the way that he should. And in this movie, it was starting to worry me. I mean, his his romantic comedy last year, Ghost Town, with Tay Leone and Greg Kinnear. I remember giving kind of a mixed review. I I really enjoyed seeing it, and I thought actually that the the love story in that was great. The chemistry between the two leads was the best part of it. But I felt that it was too conventional for Ricky Gervais, and it was. A little bit sad that he didn't quite live up to his potential in it. Still, though, that to me seemed like, well, it's a promising start, and we'll see what Hollywood does with him. And now, with this movie, I'm starting to feel a little bit of a, a knell of doom that maybe he's not going to find his place in Hollywood, and I don't want him to keep flailing. I want him to, to, to be able to do the great work that he's capable of. Right, and the real question is, was he flailing because of Hollywood, or was he flailing because of him? Because Ghost Town, he didn't write. And this movie, he did write. And so... Is it that he needs to go back to the BBC where he can make whatever he wants without studio interference? Or is it that he tailored this movie to what he thought a studio or what he thought Hollywood or what he thought moviegoers would want, and as a result made a movie that wasn't nearly as good as it could have been? I mean, in either case, it suggests to me that probably he just needs to go back to the BBC, but but I'm interested to know why and whether there's hope whether if he makes a movie independently without a studio or if he just makes the movie that he wants to make he is there is still like a cinematic masterpiece in his future because i think he's enough of a genius that it's plausible to think that that could happen still well here's a sign of hope it's that his next movie is going to be a collaboration with with steven merchant and that they're going to co-write and co-direct it so it is going to be something i think that harks back more to the to the work that they did for the bbc so you know i'm definitely still holding out hope for ricky gervais but he might be one of those people that that doesn't belong in the constrictive format of of hollywood mainstream movie making well dan thank you so much for joining me for this slate spoiler special podcast thanks for having me so our producer today was Andy Bowers, who is also the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.